folks, and who would have thought that there would be so many good-looking people in Dundee? Let's uh, open the Word together. Let's turn back to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 11 for a few minutes tonight. And we'll be focusing on the section from uh, verse 12 to 25. Let's just uh, bow our heads for a moment's prayer just before we begin. Lord God, our loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks tonight that you are a great God, that you are the sovereign God, that you are almighty. You are the beginning, the end, that things begin and end with you. We thank you for the revelation and creation which surrounds us, and we thank you for the revelation of truth through your word. We pray that you would prepare us tonight for your word, that you would prepare our hearts and our minds, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts to understand, that you would continue to change us, that you would continue to mold us through the gospel, that we would become more Christ-like, that we would be people of true faith, that this would be a place of true worship, and that we would see your face. Speak to us tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Mark chapter 11. Well, some of you, maybe some of the more elderly people here will remember frock coats. Uh, Ministers quite often used to wear frock coats, which were smart black jackets. And as the Beatles were rising to fame during the 60s, they started to wear frock coats as they were performing. And the story goes of this uh, West Highland minister conducting a wedding And he comes out after the wedding service, and this young girl runs up to him enthusiastically and says, are you one of the Beatles? And he says, no, I'm not, but I'm I'm interested in why you would think that. And she said, well, you're wearing one of their coats. Appearances can be deceptive. Maybe for some of you younger people, quite a lot of students in tonight. Remember when Susan Boyle walked onto your screen, or Paul Potts walked onto the screen, and Britain's Got Talent, we pretty much wrote them off straight away just by looking at them, and then they sang, and they wowed us with their amazing voices. Similar to the story here, what we have here in the passage that we read is Jesus and his disciples during his last week of his earthly life, and we see a similar situation with the fig tree, but not only with the fig tree, but with the temple as well. Appearances can be deceptive, and whilst the text here was primarily speaking to Israel, There is a word of warning, and there is a word of teaching to each of us here. The Lord wants us to know that He is examining our lives. He is looking at our lives, and He wants us to know, and He wants to see genuine spiritual fruit in our lives. And when He doesn't find it, there's a high price to pay. So you've got the two stories here. You've got the account of the the withered fig tree, and you've got the account of the clearing of the temple. So, obviously, the, the fig tree is significant because it sandwiches the account of the cleansing of the temple. And Jesus is using it as a lesson to the twelve that he's with, and he's using it as a lesson to us tonight about the dangers of false faith. The curse of the fig tree is not about trees, it's not about fruit, but it's about faith, and it's about fakery. When Jesus curses the fig tree, he's acting out a spiritual lesson. He was on his way to a temple and to a religious system that had all the leaves of piety, but it was dead and it was fruitless 
on the inside. And Jesus was disappointed in the tree, but He was a lot more disappointed in the people in His temple, going through all the motions of religion, yet bearing no spiritual fruit. And He's just as disappointed in us when we do the same. So, let's look at the passage. Um, Let's firstly look at verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus came in, and he came into the temple, and he saw all that was going on. But in true style, he exercised his self-restraint, and he left, no doubt, to pray over what he had just seen. He takes himself away, and he no doubt speaks to his father through the night and the next morning before making his way back to the temple. Now, tonight, I just want to notice three points through free church style, and we'll look very simply at the tree, the temple, and the teaching, okay? So, Jesus gets up early in the morning. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. No time for breakfast, no time for a leisurely wake-up. Jesus is awake, and He's on the road back to the temple. And as He walks along, He's hungry. Again, just a demonstration of the humanity of Jesus. Although He was fully God, He became fully man. We know that from Philippians, where it says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus' humanity is seen in many different areas, not least here. He experiences hunger. He experiences thirst. He experiences weariness. He experiences pain, rejection, loneliness. And there's more that we could say about Jesus' human experience, but that's not what we're going to focus on tonight. But the one thing to take from that is that we must remember that Jesus, in becoming man and in experiencing everything that we experience, did that so that He might identify with us, so that He might might identify with you and with me. Corinthians 5, 21 says, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might come to the righteousness of God. Jesus did all of the all that He did. He experienced everything that He experienced in order to understand where we're coming from. We know that from Hebrews, where it says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way and yet was without sin. So, Jesus was hungry. He's walking along the road, and He sees a fig tree in the distance. And He stops. He thinks, well, let's get some fruit Uh, After all, the tree is showing all the signs of being in season, of having fruit. And as Jesus arrives at the tree, he realizes that although the tree bears all of the signs of having the fruit, although there are leaves, there are no figs to be had. So Jesus curses the tree. Now, we might then look at it and say, well, why did he do that when it actually says because it was not the season for figs, in verse 13. Well, Tim Keller, 
the uh, minister of Presbyte uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, summed it up this way, which I thought was very helpful. It said, fig trees usually tend to develop leaves at the end of March, and the foliage coating is usually complete within a week. Concurrent with this, and sometimes prior to it, small nubs appear all over the tree, which quickly, quickly grow to about the size of almonds. They are not the figs themselves, but forerunners to the figs. They are edible and often eaten by peasants and others who are hungry. The events of this passage are occurring during early April, which means that these nubs should be present. And this is what Jesus is looking for. But their absence provokes his curse. The reasons for his curse, one, he couldn't satisfy his hunger. And two, the fact that these nubs weren't present indicated that there would be no figs even when the season arrived. Jesus knew that this fig tree was absolutely hopeless. It was useless. It was never going to have fruit. So I guess the question we could ask at this point is, if Jesus came into our church today, would he find our fruit? Or would he find us just adorned with nice, shiny leaves? There may very well be leaves in us that people admire, things in us, fruit in us that people look for. But if we don't have the fruit, if we're just displaying the leaves, then it's all pointless. Jesus is looking for fruit. He's not just looking for leaves as he was in this passage. If you take a minute to think about your own situation and ask, as a Christian, is Jesus my first priority in life? Is Jesus the one that I live for? Is His will, is His worship the thing that drives me, or is it just an afterthought? Do I have all the outward trappings of religion and salvation, and yet I have no real commitment to God? Do I shout, and do I testify and pretend to worship whilst in church, but act like the devil everywhere else? Israel, you see, was just like this fruitless fig tree at this time. They had all the signs of spiritual life, but they had no fruit. They were keeping the letter of the law. They were following the temple ceremonies. They were observing the ancient feasts. They were doing all the, the sacrifices. They were religious in every single detail, and yet they had no spiritual fruit. You see, Jesus isn't interested in religious activity. That's not what he's looking for. Jesus is looking for fruit. He's, he's interested only in our relationship with him. He's not interested in what we do outwardly. Consider Nicodemus in John 3.3. 3. Does Jesus commend him for his religious zeal or for his knowledge of the law? No, he immediately responds to Nicodemus by saying, you must be born again. Not that you must uphold tradition, not that you must do lots of religious duties, but that you must be born again. Tonight, are you born again? Are you a new creation in Christ? Or are you trying to fill your life with shiny leaves? Are you trying to rely on your own spiritual and religious goodness to get you into heaven? The problem with that is it's not what's required. It's not what Jesus is looking for. 
Jesus is looking for a personal and living relationship with him which will bear fruit. John 15, 16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask for in my name. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Are we bearing fruit? In our Christian walk, are we bearing the fruit of the Lord? Galatians 5.22, we know it very well, the fruit of the Spirit. Not the fruits, but the fruit. Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's not a pick-and-mix list. It's not the fruits have a bit of this and a bit of that, but it's the fruit. It's singular. It's a package that should accompany our new birth. When we become Christians, when we are followers of Christ, we should demonstrate these fruits. When we are saved, when we're saved by the grace of God, because it's all of God's grace, when we are made new, then we should be demonstrating these fruits, not for our own glory, but for God's glory. How do we do that? We do that by remaining in Him, by remaining in Jesus. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If we're far away from Jesus, if we're far away from God, then we cannot display the fruit that he wants us to because we can do nothing. The fruit on the vine is evidence of a life within the branch. As the branch yields to the vine and the vine lives through the branch, fruit happens. It's just the way nature goes. But what are the the changes? Well, there's a changed life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. But not only that, we should have a vibrant witness. We should be new people. Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is what we're called to. We're called to be Jesus' witnesses. We're called to go out with His Word. We're called to give the light of Jesus to the world. We're called to display the fruit of the Spirit to a lost and a broken generation. Think about that in your own life, in your own daily walk. I don't know if you're in in uni or if you're in work or if you're at home. There's always ways that we can serve the Lord. There's always ways that we can demonstrate His love and His fruit to those whom we're in contact with. Because if we're living all leaf and no fruit, then we're just living in spiritual hypocrisy. And we're fit for nothing. We're fit for nothing but judgment. Jesus is coming here to judge the temple. And we will be judged for what we have done But if we're in Christ today, if we know Jesus, if He is our Savior, if He has changed us, then He has taken our judgment. If we're still outside of Him, 
we are still under His judgment. We are still under His wrath. We are still condemned. So, are you changed? Are you a new person? Are you showing the fruit of Jesus in your life? Or are you just displaying shiny leaves? Because it can be very easy for us to claim to be Christians and yet not demonstrate that in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, we can go to church on a Sunday. The people went to the temple here. That doesn't matter. What's required is a personal, living relationship with Jesus, one that changes us, and one that is evident to the world outside. So that's the tree. Then we've got the temple. Jesus comes to the temple, and he expects, as he expected fruit on the tree, he expects to find spiritual fruit in his house. I mean, after all, if there was anywhere in Jerusalem that he would find spiritual fruit, then surely it would be in God's house. Surely it would be in the temple. But he didn't find spiritual fruit there, did he? What did he find? He found a circus of economic activity, buying, selling, trading, bartering, no prayer and thanksgiving. Now, Jesus could have said, okay, and he could have left it at that. But no, Jesus was angry. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Jesus was angry. Why? Because this was his father's house. And his father's house was meant to be for prayer and for thanksgiving. But the people had turned it into this makeshift market. Now, Jesus' anger is very difficult, different from the anger which we sometimes uh, display. But it wasn't the first time that he'd been angry. Mark 3, 5 says, He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts talking of his disciples. And it wasn't the first time that Jesus had cleansed the temple. He cleansed the temple once before at the beginning of his ministry. We know that from John chapter 2. Jesus went into the temple then and this time used a whip to wipe out the makeshift market that was there. And as the disciples watched him explode in indignation, they remembered the verse from Psalm 69 which said, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus had a zeal for his father's house. Jesus had a zeal that his father's house would be used for its purpose, for prayer, for thanksgiving. Do we have that same zeal? Do we have a zeal for this church? That this church would be a light to the community around it? That this building would be a house of prayer? Do we have the passion that Jesus had do we have a passion for those who are lost? You see, there was three areas in the temple. There was the sanctuary where only the priests could go. There was the court of Israel, which all male Israelites could go into. And then there was the court of the Gentiles, which was the section of the temple that was supposed to be for the Gentiles or the, the unbelievers, the non-Christians, those who had not yet accepted Jesus. It was supposed to be an area where they could go and that they could pray. But they couldn't pray, could they? 
because it had been turned into a combination of a stock exchange and flea market. And it was hindering people coming to Christ. It was hindering the unconverted being able to pray to God. This is why Jesus was angry. Not only was he angry because of that, but the exchange rates and what was happening within the temple was horrendous. Whilst elsewhere in town, you could go and buy a dove for a reasonable amount to sacrifice, when you took it to the temple, the priests were declaring them unfit. And one commentator said that the price for a dove purchased outside the temple was equivalent of a day's wages, but inside the temple it was equivalent to 45 days' wages. Jesus had absolutely no tolerance for this, and he was angry. We can tell that because he entered the temple and began driving the people out who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers. He was angry because the temple was being used for dishonest gain, It wasn't being used to proclaim the Word of God. It wasn't being used for prayer. It wasn't being used for thanksgiving. People were paying instead of praying. The people weren't using the temple for its purpose. And I guess we can be like that sometimes, can't we? We become so busy with religious things. We become so busy with our Christian activities that we become busy and yet barren spiritually. We get so caught up in our own clubs and our own committees and running this thing in the church and running that thing in the church that we begin to miss the point. When people come through our doors, the needy, the broken, the lonely, do we have time for them? Or are we so consumed with fulfilling our religious duties that we forget why we're here. We are here to show the love of Jesus, the truth of the Word, to a broken, a sinful, and a hopeless generation. Sometimes it's good to take a step back and think, what is the goal of my church? What is the goal of our church? Am I just going there and seeing what I can get out of it? Or am I going there to serve? Am I going there to actually make a difference? Am I going there to take the hope of the gospel into the community, to the people who are walking by outside, who are living broken and hopeless lives? What will our churches be? Will they be polished, perfect, silent sanctuaries? Or will they be emergency rooms full of dirty, broken people? Do we want a museum or do we want an emergency room? Jesus wanted his house to be used for its purpose. He wanted it to be used to be a house of prayer. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus wasn't happy. He was very unhappy with the way they had been using the temple, and he made it clear. And there's a challenge to all of us 
all of our churches. We must not be like the church in Sardis referred to in Revelation 3, where it says, I know your deeds. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. If we think about it, we've been given every spiritual advantage, both individually and corporately. We have His Word, God's Word. We have the church. We have the Holy Spirit. The Lord has blessed us in abundance, and therefore there is no excuse for us to be a fruitless people. There is no excuse for us not to be using the church in the way it was supposed to be. We can have all the appearances of spiritual life. We can read from the Word. We can use the right Bible. We can sing the right songs. We can walk the right path. But when people look at our churches, do they see a group of people in love with Jesus? Do they see us in love with each other? No, so often they see us bickering amongst one another. We need to love Jesus as He has loved us, and we need to live by Him, by loving our neighbors. Because when Christ is the centerpiece, when He is the focus, then things will happen. Fruit will come if we remain in Him. Only by remaining in Him will we bear fruit. So we've seen the tree, we've seen the temple, and then we see the teaching. Verse 20, in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Notice Jesus' response to Peter's exclamation there. He didn't puff out his chest in typical male fashion and say, yeah, I did that. He tells him to do two things. He says, have faith in God. He tells him to have faith. He tells him to pray. Prayer and forgiveness. These are the two things that Jesus stresses to Peter. And these are two things, aren't they, that are very difficult to fake. They're very difficult for us to fake they require work, they require impetus on our part, and they require us to rely on God. James 2.17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Or verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. We must be active in our faith. We must be a prayerful people. Are we a prayerful people? Do we strive to find time to pray. It's one of the most difficult things in the Christian walk, isn't it? Finding time to pray. We know that Jesus did it. We know that Jesus devoted so much of his time to do it. Jesus went to solitary places by himself in order to pray. He demonstrated restraint in withdrawing from the busyness of life and the busyness of the world to go and pray to his Lord, to his Father. Do we? Think about your own life. How much time do you spend with friends or at work or on the internet or watching television? And yet, compare that to how much time we spend in prayer. Prayer is the engine room of our church. Prayer is what we must spend so much time doing. First Thessalonians 5, 17 says, Be joyful always, pray continually. 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's His will for us, that we would be joyful always, that we would pray continually, that we would give thanks in all circumstances. Are we joyful always? I think if you went out and did a a poll on the street and asked people if they associated joy with the free church, they'd probably say, well, not so much. But are we joyful? We have this great hope. We have the hope of eternal life. We have been saved from our sin by the grace and by the love of Christ. And yet so often we're not joyful. And yet we're called to be joyful because it's God's will for us in Christ Jesus. We're called to pray continually. And then he says, I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Sounds amazing, doesn't it? But we see answered prayer all the time, don't we? We've seen answered prayer regarding David. Great answered prayer. And yet, why are we surprised? We have a great God. We have a God who is the author and the creator of all things. He is able if we will believe in our hearts. What's the mountain that's in your life? Perhaps you've got a mountain in your life tonight. Perhaps you feel like it's your old habits of sin. Perhaps it's regarding a loved one. Perhaps it's your child who is still outside the kingdom of God. A major part of seeing the mountains that are in our lives moved is actually having the courage to speak to it and to believe that God can deal with it. Because a lot of the time, we just don't believe that God can deal with it for us. We must be open with one another. And I think that's another great failing of many of our churches is that we're feared to actually share how we're really feeling. How are you? Fine. What does fine mean? A lot of us are struggling, but we're afraid to tell people because we worry about what they'll think of us. And yet this is exactly what we should be doing, building one another up encouraging one another, knowing that we all have different struggles, knowing that we all have different stresses. This is what a church body is. This is what a church family is, is to encourage one another. Because only in our weakness do we recognize how great God is. It is in our weakness that God becomes great Regardless of who we are, regardless of whether we were brought up in poverty or opulence, whether we were shunned by society, whether we feel powerless in in ourselves, it means nothing when it comes to Christianity because being a Christian, being a believer, means that we have access to God. We have access to the Lord and Savior of our world. When asked why he wanted to be president, Uh, John F. Kennedy replied, because that's where the power is. But he was wrong. Yeah, it was a 
about a power in an earthly sense, but we have access to much greater power. Because when it comes to God, we're all on a level playing field. Not one of us is better than the other. Whether we're rich, whether we're poor, whether we're good-looking, whether we're not so much, we are loved by God as much as anyone else. So much so that He sent His Son to die for us. So much so that Jesus went to the cross for us. Prayer is integral. It's so important. And in his book, R.T. Kendall uh, talks of prayer being the greatest fringe benefit of being a Christian. In a word, he said, being a Christian transcends your background, your culture, your ability or your inability, your social or political status, and gives you access to the God of the Bible. He is your creator and redeemer. He knows your background backwards and forwards, knows your thoughts before even you have them, loves you with all your faults, knows the number of hairs in your head. You, yes, you just as you are, have access to a greater power than can be conceived on this earth. You and I have this access because we are children of God, and that is why prayer is the greatest fringe benefit of being a Christian. We have access to God. Incredible. It can be difficult to pray. It can be hard to pray because of the doubts that we have within us, because of the limitations that we place on God. But we must remember that He delights to hear us pray. But we see that prayer is also linked closely with forgiveness here. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. If we're coming to the Lord and we're harboring bitterness or judgment or a grudge in our own hearts towards other people, then what he's saying here is we cannot expect to be forgiven of our sins. Matthew 6, uh, 14 and 15 For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your Father in heaven will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It's fairly clear, isn't it? That section's at the end of uh, the the Lord's prayer and where the Lord teaches us how to pray, i.e. prayer and forgiveness goes hand in hand. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. The Lord teaches that we are to forgive just as we have been forgiven. Is there somebody in your life today that you're bearing a grudge on? Is there somebody that you're harboring bitter thoughts towards? How can you expect to show the fruit that Jesus wants you to show whilst harboring these thoughts? You can't do it. We can't show the fruit of the Spirit whilst being bitter towards people. We can't show the fruit of the Spirit whilst holding grudges in our hearts against people. What is, how does that look, I mean, what does that look like for us on a daily basis? Well, it means being patient with the person that you find difficult to get on with. Showing kindness to those people who are in need. Being patient with 
folk who get on our nerves being self-controlled like Jesus was, all of these things, these are all fruits, fruits of the Spirit. So is our fruit evident? Is your fruit evident? Or are you living a life of two halves? Living one way inside the walls of this building and living completely differently outside. That's not what Jesus wants. Jesus knows what's in our lives. Jesus knows what's in our hearts. And He wants us to come to Him. He wants us to pray. He wants us to forgive. He wants us to bear fruit. And He wants you to recognize if you're outside of His kingdom, if you're not a believer, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, He's saying to you, you cannot do it by yourself. There is nothing that you have that endears yourself to me. There is nothing that you can do to make me love you more. There is nothing you can do to make me love you yet less. I love you because I love you. I am God, and I want you to come to me. And Jesus stands with open arms, and he says, come to me. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. What's holding you back? Your shiny leaves won't do it. And those of us who are believers, do we have real fruit in our lives? Are we displaying real fruit to those around about us? Is our church a beacon of hope, a tree filled with the fruit of Christ? Or are there things that Jesus wants to overturn? Are there things still that Jesus wants to drive out? So I guess in closing, what's the closing question? The question would be, what does Jesus see today when he looks at your life? What does Jesus see today when he looks at our church? Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its challenge. We know that your word is challenging so often. And we pray that we would examine our hearts before you, that we would be people who are filled with your spirit, that we would be prayerful people, that we would indeed be joyful always, and from that we would remain in you and that you would bear much fruit through our lives, that we would be people who demonstrate the love of Jesus to those whom we meet, that our church would be a place of hope, a place of joy, a place of satisfaction. Lord God, go before us now, continue with us in the rest of our service this evening. Continue to be with David. We give you thanks for a measure of recovery, and we pray that that would continue, and that the glory would all be yours. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.